Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around we foray from my spare room in North Wales to delve down some dark rabbit hole of tales of true crime that are often shocking, horrific, unbelievable, and I strive for unfamiliar from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm as ever Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My true crime enthusiast cat, Pigsy, is here as always. And completing us are you lot, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show so worthwhile. It's as fabulous as it always is having you join us today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then you and yours are all good, you're all safe, and you're all well. To begin with then, thanks go out to all who've gotten in touch concerning the previous episode of The Enthusiast, Horror on the Horseshoe Pass, the terrible tale of the actions of Keith Young back in March 2003. It was a horrendous tale to do, it's up there with the worst that I've ever covered and as has been echoed in the comments and feedback that I've received, I gather that, so I do appreciate those, thank you so much all. Thanks also this time around, head out to both my returning and new Patreon supporters, with shout outs going out to Kat Tolland, Joanne Ponder, Moira Curland, Eileen Warby, Carlos Fandango, can you hear me Stephen Toast? and Sarah Cole, plus Kat C, who's edited her pledge, and Rob Brentall, who has opted to annually support the show. It's fabulous of you all to do so, folks. My utmost thanks. Now, new Patreon episode time will be around before you know it. One a month comes out. But should you be caught up and fancying that bit of extra enthusiast to listen to, then you can support the show very reasonably and easily and get yourself a full series worth of bonus episodes. From the horror described in Disfigured to the bizarreness of the strange tale of Hellish Nell, there's all sorts in the catalogue for you listening. Quicker than Rebecca Vardy digesting an Instagram post for her own benefit, you can hear these and more. Just simply head over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there, always remembering that podcast suffix, and you'll find it no worries, I'm sure. Or you can just use the ever-present link that's in the episode show notes. Now, as bananas as it feels, we're almost at the midpoint of Series 7, and the episode this time around then brings the long-awaited return of a listener-penned episode, as it's been a bit since we've done one, and it's bloody good to get them back. I have a strange yet interesting account to bring you from listener Karen McLeod, a case that's fairly local to her, and one we shall get to very shortly, following a word from the show sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. The relationships we each have take work, especially the most important one you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. Ask yourselves, is there perhaps something out there that's stopping you from being the person that you want to be, something that's interfering with your happiness and stopping you from achieving your goals or your wants? If any of this sounds familiar to you, then maybe better help is the solution that can help you with it, because help is something that we all need at some point in our lives. Better help is online therapy offering you video, phone, even live chat sessions with a therapist, so if you don't want to, you don't have to see anyone on camera. It's more affordable than any in-person therapy, it's available worldwide, 
and in under 48 hours, you can be matched with a licensed professional therapist that's selected to be best suited to help you with your needs. I've found personally that talking to a professional in the past has helped me in my own times of need, so should you feel the need to, why not try BetterHelp and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and the True Crime Enthusiast podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash TCE. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash TCE. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, as I said a few moments ago, it's listener episode time. I always love hosting these, I really do. And this one brings a tale penned by listener Karen McLeod, a mysterious unsolved tale that's a local one to her and one that was topical last year. Now theoretically, the case in question may not even be a crime in itself, although it has certainly in recent years been considered and investigated as one. It's a frustrating tale because there are several gaps in information with it that may cast the case in a different light if we had them. But you work with what you have, don't you? In this case, it mainly being the recollections and accounts of Stephen's mother and father. I commend Karen for the research she's put into this. It's been fab. And I must stress that I've added very, very little to her account. I've only merely tweaked it to suit my own narrative. Whenever we cover unsolved cases here on the show, as usual, the background and events are described first, and then any possible theories are aired which I stress are not meant to say categorically what's happened, they are just that, theories, the thinking out loud bit, you know. The episode contains details and descriptions of events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast, and this time around Karen also, for a listener-penned episode I've entitled The Vanishing. The beautiful village of Mask-by-the-Sea is one situated in between the seaside town of Redcar and the Victorian town of Saltburn on the North Yorkshire coast. Dating back to being named in the Doomsday Book, aside from the picturesque old sandstone cottages lining the village's high street, the impressive Mask Hall, Cliff House and St Mark's Church, Mask Beach is a prominent feature there often nominated as one of the most beautiful and hidden gems of a beach in the UK. Now, point of note, it was on the sands between Mask and Saltburn that on the 17th of June 1922, Sir Malcolm Campbell set his first land speed record when he achieved a speed of 138.08 miles per hour while driving Bluebird. And the first World War Bristol M1C monoplane the only British monoplane fighter to reach production during the conflict, made its maiden flight from the former Mask aerodrome. Notable people to hail from or have connections with Mask, as we shall refer to it going forth, include England and Yorkshire cricketer Paul Jarvis, West Indies cricketer Albert Padmore, Captain W.E. Johns, the author of the Biggles books, who was posted there from April to August 1918, and Charlotte Hughes, the longest living person ever documented in the UK, who lived in Mask to the age of 115 years, 228 days. So in my estimation, 
She was born just before the start of the Wagatha Christie libel case. Although I love that moniker, I think it's fabulous. As an aside, a better example of pointless twats with more money than sense pointlessly rowing, I can't think of either. A complete waste of an orgasm, both of them. Amongst its population of almost 8,000 people, Marsk has also been the home for more than 30 years now of husband and wife Charles and Doris Clark. They remain in the house they've lived in for the past three decades, yet over this time, one room of the house remains largely untouched today. Their daughter Victoria's childhood room has long since been decorated, but their son Stephen's room hasn't been touched hardly since 1992. It's kept pretty much how it has been since the December day of that year, because since that day, the then 23-year-old Stephen has been a missing person. Doris and Charles both hailed from South Shields in Tyneside, where both were former police officers, having met on the force in the 1960s. Doris had served 10 years as a WPC, and Charles 5 years, having worked his way up to the rank of sergeant, before leaving to start a car rental business. They married in the mid-1960s and began a somewhat nomadic lifestyle, with their first-born son, Stephen Charles Clark, coming into the world on the 30th of August 1969 in Colchester in Essex, and his sister Victoria following a year later in 1970. By the time Stephen was two, the family had moved up to the small town of Kirkliston near Edinburgh in Scotland, and it was here that the small boy was involved in a serious accident in which he was hit by a lorry. His mother Doris had set out for the shops and was unaware that her toddler son had followed her, merely noting a lorry speeding past her and turning around to find Stephen lying in the road, having been struck by it. He was very badly injured as a result of this collision, spending a month in a coma and following his recovery, being left with a lifelong noticeable limp and a severe disability affecting his left arm, rendering it useless. Although there are no reports that Stephen was affected mentally by the accident, Doris commented many years later that following this, he was never the same little boy anymore and that they were never the same again, although as a family, they worked as hard as they could to get him better. The family continued their nomadic lifestyle following this, moving from Kirkliston to live for a time in Kimbolton in Cambridgeshire, before in the early 1980s the family moved to Johannesburg in South Africa. They were to stay here for almost a decade, where due to his disability, Stephen attended the Muriel Brand School there for children with special needs, and did academically well, being described as a sociable and extremely kind boy. The family returned to the UK in 1989, when Stephen was around the age of 20, living for a short time in Guildford in Surrey, before in 1991 returning towards the native northeast, settling in the village of Marsk-by-the-Sea on the North Yorkshire coast. Stephen's life in Marsk was very different from the restricted lifestyle he'd had in South Africa, and he embraced the opportunities that were presented to him. He did some voluntary work in the Leonard Cheshire Care Home in the former Marsk Hall and attended the Rathbone Society in Redcar, a charity catering to help differently abled people find work and where, 
towards the end of 1992, he'd won the Apprentice of the Year award. On the strength of this, as one of its success stories, Stephen had even featured in a promotional video for the charity, where he was portrayed as a smartly dressed young go-getter, happily demonstrating his computer skills to a fellow attendee, although at the time of his disappearance, he was reportedly struggling to find employment. There was also reportedly a cash prize that went with the Apprentice of the Year award of £1,000, though Stephen was for some reason never to collect this. On Monday the 28th of December 1992, which was a bank holiday due to the way the Christmas holidays had fallen that year, then 23-year-old Stephen had planned to go to the Middlesbrough versus Crystal Palace Premier League match at the original Middlesbrough football ground Ayrson Park with his father Charles. They regularly attended Middlesbrough matches together with Charles usually paying for both of the tickets. However, on this day, for reasons unexplained, Charles had jokingly told Stephen that if he wanted to come to the match then he would have to pay for his own ticket. Stephen had declined this and despite Charles stating that it was a joke, he didn't step in to buy the ticket for his son and went off to the match by himself. Whether this caused somewhat of a scene or a row isn't clearly established, though reportedly, according to his own parents, Stephen was somewhat down and frustrated about his lack of money due to his lack of employment. Instead of the planned trip to the football that day then, Stephen instead reportedly went for an afternoon walk with his mother Doris, taking a route heading away from their home in Mask to Saltburn Seafront, a route about three miles in total and which would have taken them around 45 minutes, although allowing for longer of course to account for Stephen's mobility issues. Reportedly, Stephen had taken none of his personal belongings with him on this walk either. His wallet, his watch and glasses were left at home, his mother claiming years later that she didn't think he even had his house keys with him. It's reported that they walked along the beach on this walk. Now there is a newly named English coastal path that runs along the cliff above the beach as an alternative one, but this path takes the walker from here out across fields and into Saltburn Woods before descending down to the promenade. There have been questions as to whether Stephen would have been able to manage this distance and terrain due to his mobility issues, but his mother was adamant that he could have although he will understandably have been tired afterwards. When they arrived in Saltburn then, Doris is unsure of the exact time they did. Stephen had reportedly told Doris that he needed to use the toilet, so he entered the public toilets on Saltburn seafront near to the pier entrance and close to the bottom of the funicular railway. Doris stood outside the toilets waiting for him for a few minutes, during which time she decided to use the toilet herself and so went into the ladies adjacent to the gents within the same building, and with one door for both entrance and exit to each block. After a few minutes, Doris came out of the toilets herself, but Stephen was nowhere to be seen, and after waiting for a period of time for him, when he didn't reappear, she assumed that he must have simply gone home ahead of her, and so set off for home herself. When she arrived at home, Stephen wasn't there ahead of her, and she reportedly then got three cups out to make coffee for them all upon Charles's return from the football. But when Charles came in, Stephen was still not back. 
Concerned that he would have been tired from this walk, on returning home then, Charles got into his car and immediately began searching for Stephen. Stephen had been known to go off by himself at times and he liked to meet up with friends at a local pub, the Ship Inn, including a girl that he'd reportedly started a relationship with, and although it was checked, there was no sign of Stephen here. Charles toured the mask area and the drivable route to Saltburn Pier and back, shouting all the while for Stephen, but to no avail. According to their claims in an ITV documentary that was aired in 2021, the Clarks reported Stephen to police as missing firstly at about 6.30pm that evening, but were told that as Stephen was an adult, they should wait 24 hours to give him chance to return home before formally reporting him as missing. I thought it somewhat strange and dismissive this, as though Stephen's disability and thus his potential vulnerability were merely ignored and no importance attached to this that may possibly escalate such a report. After him entering that toilet, the Clarks have never reportedly seen Stephen alive or dead to this very day. But that isn't to say that there haven't been reported sightings of him since this. There are four that attention have constantly been drawn to. One of these was from a mask resident named Stam Kamesh, who has since passed away, and who knew Stephen and his father Charles from their local pub in Mask. Stan claimed initially that around 2pm on December the 30th, which would have been two days after Stephen had disappeared, he had seen him in red car near to the clock on the high street. But this is a sighting that has conflicting reports concerning it. Stan had initially stated to police officers that he was in conversation with a friend at the time and wasn't able to catch Stephen's eye, but saw Stephen walking towards Redcar Town Centre wearing a blue Parker-style coat and that he was on his own. However, there are differing accounts of this sighting, so it's impossible to ascertain the level of accuracy, if any, of it. When Stan was spoken to by detectives investigating Stephen's disappearance in 1999, seven years after he went missing, we shall get on to the relevance of the year shortly. Stan now changed his earlier account to say that he was around 30 yards away and never at any time any closer when he saw a man that walked in a similar style to Stephen but that he didn't see his face or talk to him. It was also raining very heavily that day, he claimed. However, in the ITV documentary aired in April 2021, Stan's widow, Joyce, stated quite categorically that Stan had told her he had spoken to Stephen that day. He'd come to meet her from work and had disappeared for a few minutes, but when he came back, he said, Did you see who I was talking to? When Joyce said no, he replied, Stephen, you know, young Stephen from the club, the lad with the poorly arm. Now Joyce is quite sure of this story. It was only some days later that they realised that Stephen had been reported as missing, so when Stan made his initial statement to police, cannot be ascertained, nor can be, why his story changed. Three days after Stephen disappeared, however, a reported sighting by a girl who knew Stephen, that was reported to the Clarks by police, picks him up as coming up out of the Valley Gardens in Saltburn, which run alongside Saltburn Bank and pass through a wooded area there. 
as Stephen was last supposedly seen on Saltburn Promenade. This would have been a walk of several hundred metres away from here to end up near the Valley Gardens, then a walk up long sloping paths to get to the top, where he was seen emerging on Saltburn's Balmoral Terrace. Stephen was reported to be in company with someone here, a balding man with glasses and grey hair, wearing a grey overcoat, although no estimated age or further description than this is given of the man, nor what time of day this sighting was, was it light or dark, what distance was this sighting made from, how was Stephen's demeanour, what clothes was he wearing, etc, etc. The description of the man was not of someone that Charles or Doris recognised. Another sighting which featured in the local press on the 22nd of January 1993 was reported by a resident who lived in a row of houses on Glenside in Saltburn. Again, someone who reportedly knew Stephen through a connection to the bowling club, although the extent to which she knew him is not clear. A sighting in which she claimed to have seen Stephen some 17 days after his disappearance, on January the 14th, 1993, at around 5pm. She was aware that Stephen was recorded as a missing person by that time and claimed that she saw him out of her front window and that he was walking towards Saltburn's Glenside Terrace. This is a second sighting to put Stephen in company with a man, one similar in description to the earlier sighting, bald with grey hair around the sides, of medium build and wearing glasses, though this witness reports further that he was aged around 50 to 60 years old. Though clearly in company, she stated that Stephen and the man were not talking and it seemed that Stephen was struggling to keep up with him. But the most compelling sighting reported only came to light two years ago, in 2020, when a woman came forward, again someone who knew Stephen, to say that she'd seen him on the day of his disappearance at about 5.15pm. He'd walked past her and her family as they were walking on Mask High Street, though he was walking in the opposite direction to his home. She further stated that she hadn't reported this sighting back in 1992 because she didn't think it to be relevant. Now, there are very little media reports concerning the extent of any investigation into Stephen's disappearance from the end of December 1992 into 1993 available for research, although appeals were reportedly made. Periodic reports detail Charles and Doris scouring the country for him over the following years, as far north as Edinburgh and as far south as London, but to no avail. Indeed, it was to be some seven years after his disappearance that the next point of note arises in the case. On the 24th of September 1999, almost seven years after Stephen's disappearance, Cleveland police received an anonymous handwritten letter. The short narrative, the full contents of which have never been made public, was received and claimed to have information relating to Stephen's disappearance, believed to state quite precisely in nature to know that Stephen was dead and given the name of the person who had killed him. Although it is reported that two months after this letter had been received, police had attended Stephen's home to discuss its contents, the reason for the delay from it being received to this is not explained. At the time, the letter led to nothing, 
it was to be 21 years before any serious action was taken here concerning this letter. The case was to remain on the active with regular reviews pile for more than two decades, until in late 2019, a Cleveland and North Yorkshire police cold case review team began to take a look once again at the disappearance of Stephen Clark. Though no body had ever been discovered, there had never been any proof that Stephen may still be alive either. No bank transactions, no social security claims, and no one matching his description being reported as hospitalised or found dead. So, when all these avenues of inquiry had been explored and closed off, by September 2020, the missing persons inquiry had been relaunched as a murder investigation. One which they only had two suspects for. On the 14th of September 2020, almost 28 years after Stephen's disappearance, at around 8am in the morning, there was a knock on the clerk's door. Doris answered it in her dressing gown, only to be greeted by the police. Now, during the ITV documentary we've referred to throughout the account so far, as Doris recalls this story, Charles laughs bitterly. Police asked her where Charles was, and she replied that he was in the shower, so they asked her to ask him to come down, and when he did, wrapped in an orange bath towel, nice, the couple were then arrested on suspicion of the murder of Stephen Clark. Doris recalls here, years later, that she may have laughed in disbelief at this, whereas Charles was much more angry about the accusation, and in his own words, he was abrupt with officers, saying that he told them to go away and behave themselves. The warrant for their arrest had been issued six days before, on the 8th of September, but a search of the Clark's home did not get underway until the 18th of September. Every part of the house and garden was searched in depth over a five-day period, during which time the Clarks were not allowed into their home. Areas of the stray between Mask and Redcar were also dug up, mere metres from their house, woodland and a snicket which runs in between some of the houses nearby. Charles says on camera here that at first he thought this was a joke. The garden was completely dug up and the shed moved, which had angered Doris and Charles, who complained that when the flower beds and the shed were put back, willy-nilly as Charles describes, he could no longer access the back of the shed and their rotary dryer was left unusable as it now struck the back fence where it had been replaced. Now reportedly, an item of significance was removed during this search, although it's never been revealed what this was. After 17 weeks of investigation in total, the Clarks were finally released without charge, though they were left aware that the police may contact them again in the absence of any other suspects in the case. A statement released at the time from Cleveland and North Yorkshire Cold Case Unit reads, Mr. and Mrs. Clark were visited at their home address on the 3rd of November 1999 about the letter and its contents. The arrest phase of the investigation followed a review by Cleveland North Yorkshire Police Cold Case Unit, which began in 2019. Two people who were arrested on suspicion of the murder of Stephen Clark have now been released from the investigation without charge. We are continuing to investigate Stephen's disappearance and people can continue to contact us with information. 
There is no proof of life and we believe Stephen has come to serious harm and the case continues to be classified as one of suspected murder. By April 2021, around the time that the television documentary aired, and if you're in the UK, then it is still available to watch on the ITV hub. It was reported in the North Yorkshire local press that the officer leading the 2020 inquiry, Detective Chief Inspector Sean Page and his team, using the latest forensic techniques, were focusing upon searching an area around the bottom of Saltburn Bank, a very steep bank which is also the name of a winding main road through Saltburn, not too far from Saltburn Pier. It's a popular area atop which there's a bar and hotel, the Spa Hotel, which has changed name several times since 1992, when it was formerly known as Rosio Grady's, situated on the bank itself, which is always busy, especially during the summer months where drinkers can sit outside, enjoy the sunshine and the views of the bay below. The search area comprised of the bottom of this bank and the footpath leading up to the spa hotel, extending across Skelton Beck and into the valley gardens adjacent to Saltburn Bank, which contain a myriad of steep footpaths that crisscross through the woodland to the top. Now this is a completely separate area from where any searches in an initial investigation would have been focused. Saltburn Bank is a quarter of a mile further on from the cliff as where the toilet Stephen was last seen in are at the bottom of, though it is reported that previous searches of other parts of Saltburn had already been scoured in the week-long planned search. Nothing was found. This is where former detective and investigative journalist Mark Williams Thomas comes into the tale. For those who've never seen the Investigator series and are unfamiliar with Mark and his impressive exploits, he's the former child protection specialist who, in 2012, was the one who first exposed the monster that was Jimmy Savile to be a paedophile. And he was the only British journalist to be granted access to be able to interview Oscar Pistorius during his trial for the murder of his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. He's worked on several high-profile cases of recent years, as well as reinvestigating several cold cases for ITV. Hell of a nice bloke as well, he signed my book at CrimeCon last year too. And when the clerks reached out to him, he got involved in their case. He was allowed almost unheard of access to the couple during the police investigation into them, spending some 17 weeks with them in total. And it's this relationship that formed the ITV documentary Accused of Murdering Our Son, which I shall go on to discuss shortly. Now you have to agree that this is a puzzling case indeed, and I was thrilled that Karen has taken a leaf out of my book and has thought out loud while researching. The side notes and questions she's posed at various points during the account she sent me are exactly how I work myself, which has saved me a massive job, I tell you. So what we shall do is, as we always do, we shall now go back through what I've recounted so far bit by bit, but this time chipping in with theories and questions that are posed. I must remind also that these are not intended to be a declaration of what has happened, gospel. It's merely the thinking out loud bit, the three-pipe problem. Firstly, although it's reported by his mum and dad that Stephen was down and frustrated about his lack of employment prospects at the time of his disappearance, there's nothing in Stephen's background to suggest he was otherwise unhappy with anything or fearful of anything 
mixed up with the wrong crowd, having problems at home or with anyone, that type of thing. He'd just been awarded his apprenticeship trophy and the decent cash prize that went with it. And although still relatively new to the area, he was reportedly a very sociable person and was very well liked by those who knew him. He even reportedly had recently met a girl in the local pub that he was keen on. Whilst her name has never been revealed, and it indeed can't be ascertained if they were officially an item, she'd certainly taken Stephen home to meet her parents. So, his disappearance wouldn't seem to be a voluntary one. You'd have to ask, what for? Going on then to the day of his disappearance. On this day, Charles had jokingly told Stephen that if he wanted to come to the Middlesbrough Crystal Palace match, he'd have to pay for his own ticket. Stephen declined as a result, and Charles didn't step in to buy the ticket for him, despite him stating that it was a joke. In Charles' own words, those said with painful warmth, they often joked that Stephen didn't like spending his own money, the tight-fisted little fellow that he was. Did father and son part on a somewhat sour note here because of this? Did it cause a row? Now here, when this event is recounted on the ITV documentary, Mark Williams Thomas, who will refer to simply as Mark going forward, states that of course, Charles could never have then known the significance of this date. Charles's face falls and he agrees and he says of course, because he never would have gone. He turns to Mark and says, and that's my story, looking away slightly as he adds, and that was the truth of it. How can you know? So, with Charles ostensibly gone off to the football, and again, this cannot be ascertained, Stephen opted to instead go out for a walk that afternoon with his mother, though it's unclear whose suggestion this exactly was. As we've heard, the planned route was to head from the Clark House in Mask down to Saltburn Beach that afternoon, an estimated three-mile journey that would have taken about 40 to 45 minutes though the exact route is not specified. Interestingly, when Doris and Mark have retraced this journey, Doris stated later that she couldn't recall if she and Stephen had even set off on the walk together, or if Stephen had gone ahead and she'd caught him up. His belongings were reportedly left at home, his wallet, his watch, even his glasses, and she wasn't sure if he even had his house keys with him or not. Now Karen flags up here, as follows. This is quite puzzling, for if he set off alone, he surely would have at least taken his keys with him, for even if he set back home without her, where was he planning to go when he arrived home with no keys? And surely it would be known whether he had them with him or not, because if not, they'd likely be at home with his other things that you keep together and that you subconsciously pick up before you leave the house she would be able to definitively state that he had or hadn't got them with him. Also, not remembering if they set off together or she'd caught Stephen up, I feel this is a very odd comment, for if Stephen had gone out for a walk on his own, why had his mother even set off after him to catch him up? If you're planning to go for a walk together, then surely you'd set off at the same time, wouldn't you? And it's been raised, why wouldn't she remember more details about the walk, considering that it was reportedly the last time she ever saw Stephen? Upon reaching Saltburn Pier then, 
Doris reported that Stephen went to use the toilet on the promenade and she waited outside here for him for some moments before deciding to use the facilities herself. Doris later reported to the police that while she was waiting for Stephen to come out of the toilet, two men approached with a little girl. One of the men went into the toilet while the other waited outside with the little girl and then on the first man's return, the second man then went in to use it himself. Doris didn't ask either of these men if they'd seen Stephen in the toilets. These men have never been identified. Though Doris was asked the burning question, why she didn't shout through the door for him, look for him, or ask someone else to look for him, she said that this would never have entered her mind to do, as Stephen was 23 and was an adult, and she thought he would be mortified if she'd gone into the toilets looking for him. Eventually, after waiting for what she claimed was several minutes, she came to the conclusion that Stephen had headed for home without her while she'd been in the toilet, and so headed off back home herself. Karen's asides here are as follows. But as much as these two men and the little girl have never been identified or come forward, no witnesses whatsoever have ever come forward to say that they saw Doris and Stephen at Saltburn Pier that day either. Despite in an interview years later, Doris stating that there were masses of people around that day and stressing how popular Saltburn is, especially on a bank holiday. Stephen had a very distinctive walk and a useless left arm. Surely someone would have noticed them there. I also wonder how long she actually waited for. I can imagine it would have taken Stephen longer than most men to use the toilet, as was documented and was indeed shown on the promotional video from the Rathbone Society. He didn't use his left hand at all. There are no reports that Doris shouted into the toilets, and the door is always open, to find him, or to even ask a passerby to pop in and see if he was still there. I also wonder why she would assume that he'd gone home without her. Was that a normal part of their relationship? It strikes me as odd, for if you've come out as a couple, for one part of the dynamic to then walk home alone without alerting the other. It's quite strange, that, eh? It is possible that Stephen, expecting his mum to be waiting outside, came out of the toilets to find her not there, as she decided to then use the toilet herself, and could so have set off to have a look for her. The area that the toilets stand on are on a promenade at the bottom of a steep cliff, with no immediate corners, and the toilets are only a very short distance from the beach, where there's a fairly steep step down onto the sand, and so has iron railings across to prevent falling. There are concrete steps at intervals along the prom, but as these can get built up with sand, and with such close proximity to the sea, can become salt damaged, they can become treacherous so I don't think he would have gone too far looking for her before she came back out, and it's likely that she would have seen him. The pier is close by, and he may have walked down here looking for her, but it may equally have been closed by then in December. Now, the report of the two men and the little girl is a strange addition to the account, considering Doris stood and waited outside for the time it took two men to use the toilet one after each other, and didn't think to ask if there was anyone else in there. Also, the mention of two men and a little girl in 1992 would certainly raise more eyebrows and be more memorable than it would be today.
did Stephen then perhaps indeed set off for home by himself? On the day that Stephen went missing, at the time Doris states she last saw him, she admits that she's not certain of the actual time, but thinks it was around 3pm. The tide was neither high nor low, but was coming in. Checks reveal the high tide that day occurred at 6.29pm. If Stephen did decide to walk home, I wonder if he would have taken the coastal path instead of walking along the beach as the tide was coming in and there's an area on Mask Beach that is narrower than the rest, meaning that you can get cut off by the tide there. Maybe with an incoming tide and due to it being December with the daylight fading, he decided to walk up that way. However, if so, he would have had to enter Saltburn Woods to access this path, which can be remote, and it is also uncertain if, due to his disability, he would have even been able to negotiate the terrain of the coastal path, as the terrain is difficult in places. There are places where he could have fallen here, granted, but I find it hard to believe that if he had, then he would not have been subsequently discovered. Although it's not geographically very far from where he would have last been seen, it's also in the opposite direction to where his home is. Even if he had taken this coastal path home instead of the beach, he's still initially heading in the wrong direction. And with the fading light, I can't see any reason that Stephen would voluntarily go in this direction. But surely, this is a theory that will have been looked at. It's not clear at exactly what time the clerk started looking for Stephen that Monday, but it would have to have been after 4pm. If Doris claimed to have last seen him at about 3pm and allowing for her own walk home from Saltburn Beach, then finding him not at home when she arrived, or being unconcerned enough at this time to begin preparing coffee for the three of them, indeed, it's most probably after 5 to 5.30pm when Charles would have arrived home from the Middlesbrough match. The couple were interviewed on the ITV show This Morning around the same time of the airing of the documentary last year and in it the scoff does ask them the question At what point Charles do you think this has become an issue this is not him going to the loo going for a bit of a wander and coming home late when did you think there was a problem when indeed yes it would be strange behaviour to just head off home by himself without warning but Stephen was, after all, a fully grown adult, so when exactly would it be time to worry? Although due to his disability, his parents may have been more protective of him and aware of his potential vulnerability, ergo would worry more quickly than perhaps other parents would about someone of the same age. Charles responded to the scope that as they live very close by the sea, he could see that by then the tide was fully in and there was no beach to walk along at all by that time. Remember, high tide that day was at 6.29pm. So he decided instead to head to the Saltburn area in his car, and drove around here shouting out for Stephen. Now, allowing for him being back from the football, it would indeed be around this time of high tide, give or take 30 or 40 minutes. Assuming Stephen was missing somewhere between Mask and Saltburn, the only parts that are inaccessible with a car is a three mile straight stretch along the beach, lined along by some sections by a promenade and in some by cliffs. Aside from Saltburn Woods, there's little to obscure a person from an aerial view either, 
So in theory, it isn't a massive area to search. This high tide time was at the same time the Clarks claimed to have telephoned police to report Stephen as missing, only to be told that as an adult, 24 hour period would have to pass. Now, as we know, there was no sign of Stephen and Charles claims to have looked everywhere possible, as you would think he would with mounting concerns for your missing son. The resulting police investigation reportedly turned up nothing of substantial evidential value throughout the appeals that were made, except the possible sightings of Stephen that are recounted before in the days after any of these appeals went out. The first of these is by Mask resident Stan Kamesh in Red Car Town Centre, two days after Stephen's disappearance. Now, the story has, as we said, changed over time from, according to his widow, Stan talking with Stephen that Wednesday, to him being 30 yards away from someone who walked like Stephen, a sighting that in his updated story was also obscured by driving rain. If this report was to be believed, and I think the change in story means that it can be discredited, you'd have to ask, why would Stephen be in a town around three miles from his home two days after he disappeared, having not gone home? Although he attended the Rathbone Society there, there are no reports that Stephen had any particularly close friends in Redcar he could possibly have been with, a fair estimate seeing as he'd only lived in the area for about 18 months prior to his disappearance. This was followed by a possible sighting three days after his disappearance by a girl who supposedly knew Stephen. How exactly she did isn't reported coming up out of the Saltburn Valley Gardens and reportedly in company with a balding grey-haired man wearing glasses and a grey overcoat. Again, it comes back to what we said before. The details of this possible sighting are sketchy to say the least and it's impossible to ascertain if it's a correct one with all of the gaps in reported details that there is with this sighting. This would also dovetail with the point that I've just raised. Why would Stephen have been relatively close to his home, this time even closer than the previous day, but not having been home or even called there for now three days, with no wallet or without even his glasses? The next was reported by a Saltburn resident, and there's some confusion as to where the possible sighting exactly occurred between Glenside Terrace and Balmoral Terrace, although this is possibly simply misreporting and again was by someone who reportedly knew Stephen, although once again, the extent to which she knew him isn't clear, in which she claimed to have seen Stephen some 17 days after his disappearance, on January the 14th, 1993, at around 5pm. She claimed to have seen him out of her front room window, walking in company with an older man, who the witness stated that it seemed Stephen was struggling to keep up with a man similar in description to that which the previous sighting had described, bald with grey hair around the sides, of medium build and wearing glasses, though this witness reports further for the description to add that he was aged around 50 to 60 years old. Now, again, this is a sighting that can't be ascertained with the gaps in detail that there are, although considering that it was reported in the local press at the time, it must have been given some initial weight. However, at 5pm in January, it's already dark outside, 
and this is a sighting from inside the house of someone across a road a great distance away. Add to that undisclosed weather conditions and the effect of seeing through glass at such a distance, and again, it's another sighting that I don't think can be relied on. For if it were accurate, it would fall back on the same question we've been asking. Where had Stephen been for 17 days so close to home, and why would he have not at least checked in? But were it to be accurate, an interesting question is posed here. Was the man Stephen was alleged to have been with possibly Stan? Could this have been him? The most compelling sighting of the four only came to light some 28 years after his disappearance in 2020, when a woman came forward, once again someone who claimed to have known Stephen, to say that she'd seen him on the day of his disappearance at about 5.15pm. He'd walked past her and her family as they were walking on Mask High Street, though he was walking in the opposite direction towards his home. Strangely, this hadn't been reported at the time, this witness further stated that she hadn't reported this back in 1992 because she didn't think it to be relevant. Yes, the mind boggles. Now to me, this seems bollocks. Why wait almost three decades? Why sit on something so crucial for 28 years when a high-profile missing person in the area would have been massive and memorable news? I can think of two possible reasons. Firstly, this is someone with all good intentions but who has the common sense of a wet bog roll and is so half-soaked that if you told them you had a bucket of sparks or the bloody burglar's gazette, they'd believe you. Or secondly, this is someone merely after a bit of attention and used the renewed appeal into Stephen's case to get themselves the Facebook post likes or the Instagram post hearts, that sort of shit, with some bollock story. What I would say, if it is the latter, then it's nothing but cruel, and you are nothing but a callous twat. Frustratingly, none of these potential sightings advance this case any further on, and interestingly, they're all by people who reportedly knew Stephen, and are perhaps wishful thinking, or misplaced concerns, or as I've just said, people just making shit up. So we must turn to the one piece of evidence that police had, the anonymous letter that was received seven years after Stephen's disappearance. Leading the reinvestigation, Detective Chief Inspector Sean Page said that this letter was just one of several lines of inquiries that police had available to them. And during the ITV documentary, when this point of the letter is raised, Charles states that he vaguely does remember an anonymous letter, but he claims never to have seen it or know its content and that police had never showed it to him. There is a contradicting report to this, however, because according to the ITV documentary later, in November 1999, the police attended Stephen's home to discuss the contents of this letter. I'd find it very strange indeed that the couple wouldn't remember practically word for word such an important visit and a conversation and would not know the contents of any such letter. But whatever the truth, the letter inquiry was left fallow. In the ITV documentary, Mark comments that significantly, this letter must have named either Charles or Doris, or both of them, as having been involved in Stephen's death, and that is what led the team to reinvestigate them, now as suspects. 
There are no reports of either of them having been arrested before this in 1992 or 1999 when the letter was received. Now this letter, very heavily redacted, though it can be gleaned that it would seem to support the police hypothesis that Stephen had been murdered by Charles or Doris, or both, was released in 2020, with detectives from the later investigation team reappealing for its writer to come forward 21 years after it had been sent. Following a media campaign, sure enough, the author of the letter did come forward later that year and was spoken to by police. We now know that, strangely, the writer was a woman who had no direct contact with the Clarks who didn't know them whatsoever, but who claimed to have written the letter in all good faith, though had no information to support her claims. It seems quite shocking that so much emphasis was placed onto the letter when there was never any grounds to confirm what it claimed within. Stephen's name is even incorrectly spelt throughout it. So you have to wonder, why, in 2020, did police take this so seriously, seriously enough to apply for and obtain a costly arrest warrant when it wasn't taken so 21 years before? A letter with no information or evidence to support any claims within. Was it simply disregarded at the time? Retired Avon and Somerset Detective Superintendent Julie McKay comments during the documentary that a warrant cannot just be issued on one piece of information alone. It needs to be corroborated and states that they must have something else, meaning reasonable grounds to arrest the clerks on suspicion of murder. What else, though, if anything, is not revealed? Julie McKay also does claim later through the documentary that this letter is of no evidential value whatsoever, and it does seem it, rather than being written in good faith as it's claimed. The letter stinks to me of someone either offering themselves as an armchair detective or just wanting that bit of attention as some sad acts do. Although how this works anonymously, who knows? As I said earlier, the Clarks were investigated for a total of 17 weeks and then were released on bail in February 2021. And it was at this point that the Clarks made themselves known to Mark Williams Thomas, seeking his assistance with the case. During their interview on this morning, some weeks later, Philip Schofield asks the couple outright what their motive would have been to kill Stephen, to which, after a period of silence, they reply that they were never told what their motive was supposedly to have been, because they don't have one. Concluding the interview, they are both then asked if they expect to see Stephen walk through their door again, to which they nod, perhaps somewhat awkwardly, and then start emphatically stating that they expect he will one day, Charles stating that they've looked for him every day for 28 years, and today is no different. Mark Williams Thomas appeared on This Morning with the Clarks, where he stated that this is one of the most bizarre cases he's ever been involved with. When asked outright if the Clarks are murderers, grab the bull by the bollocks, Phil, he's emphatic in his answer, no. He alludes to the 17 weeks he spent with the couple, more time than any other investigating officers, during which he asked very probing questions of both treating them initially like the murder suspects that they were at the time to try to break them, asking them the same questions in different ways, repetition, going back and forth, that kind of thing. They don't falter once. The conclusion he came to 
is that Charles and Doris are either the best actors that he's ever met, or they simply didn't kill their son or have anything to do with his disappearance. 155 days after their initial arrest, the Clarks were visited by their solicitor and police officers to be told that there would be no further action into investigating them. Almost, but not quite saying, they are officially disregarded as suspects in their son's disappearance. However, the investigation remains open. Cleveland police are still treating Stephen's disappearance as murder, the theory being although there is no body, nor is there any proof of life, and they are convinced that Stephen is no longer alive, having come to harm at the hands of someone. They also believe that someone out there still has some information that will help find out what happened to Stephen. So, it's theory time. Now I'll just reiterate, this is the thinking out loud part. None of the following is meant to claim gospel as to what's happened. Firstly, is there the possibility that Stephen is still alive? I'd think this unlikely, for 30 years plus now has passed without any trace of him. No reported sightings apart from those mentioned. No bank account transactions, hospital admissions, no contact with any family members, nothing like that. Indeed, he seems to have vanished off the face of the earth that December day. Also, if he had, like so many other people do, have suffered a mental episode whilst he was out and simply wandered off somewhere, then how far would a disabled, confused young man have got without coming to attention due to his confusion or his distress? So I believe that sadly, he is dead yet. But if so, then how did he die? It wouldn't seem to be by an accident, for surely if so, his body would have been found. This would possibly have been witnessed, or evidence found at least to suggest what may have happened to him. In comments available for research concerning this case, a potential sinkhole that he could have fallen into is mentioned. And while this may sound ridiculous at first, there is a notorious spot on Saltburn Beach that numerous people have quickly become stuck in. It's well known to the locals there, but Stephen had only lived in the area for a year. It is, however, in the opposite direction to his home and further along the beach from where they reportedly walked to, so it seems unlikely. Equally, it wouldn't seem to have been by his own hand. For what we know about Stephen, he was happy, sociable, in a relationship, working towards finding paid work and enjoying a less restrictive lifestyle in the UK than he had in South Africa. Although there is a suicide black spot in Saltburn, Hunt Cliff, an unstable cliff edge offering a 365 foot drop to the beach below, that reportedly the picturesque walk along the path that skirts it, part of the Cleveland Way, is peppered with a number for the Samaritans and many hand-painted rocks with gentle words of support for anyone who may be up there contemplating suicide, created by teenager Emily Armitage and former Coast Guard Paul Watt. This area was reportedly searched by Charles the day after Stephen disappeared, but with no trace of him. If Stephen had committed suicide by leaping from here, or even by falling from the cliff, and as I said, it's unstable enough that parts of the footpath sometimes simply fall away, then his body would surely have been found. Paul Waugh, who knows the area intricately, is on record as saying that suicide is highly unlikely a theory, 
as there are so many people frequenting the beach below the cliffs and on the footpath atop them. Plus the cliffs do not lead out into the immediate sea, there's something of a bay there, where the red car lifeboat is often launched to to perform the unenviable task of retrieving bodies from, that Stephen would have been found. The same sentence goes for Stephen having leapt to his death from Saltburn Pier. If it was of course open, his body surely would have been washed ashore, or this would have been witnessed. And you come back to the question all the time, why would you? Although it can't be ruled out definitively, for these reasons, it seems unlikely. So, that leaves the possibility of foul play. The obvious question that jumps out here is, if so, why? All sorts of reasons have been suggested here through research, from it being a possible sex crime or a hate crime, perhaps Stephen was targeted because he was thought easy prey due to his obvious disability, through to possibilities such as revenge for something or even a financial motive. And none of these theories have any real substance to them. As we've heard, he was well liked and happy and had no income of his own, so the latter two seem unlikely. Equally, with the former two possibilities, you come back to the point, if so, then where is the window of opportunity and why hide Stephen's body if so? Now, the only official suspects in Stephen's disappearance have been his mother and father. Interestingly, no mention whatsoever is made of his younger sister Victoria at all through the case, who due to her age, would also have been likely living at home at the same time. She doesn't appear in the documentary or anything. And no further investigation into them as suspects is proceeding. Well, Cleveland police claim, quite tellingly I thought, that there is no definitive smoking gun and what evidence there is has been assessed by the CPS collectively and is not enough to warrant charges being raised against any suspects. Though their story does admittedly have some gaps in and many parts of it raise questions, for example Doris's inability to remember specifics about their walk, the lack of witnesses seeing both on the said walk, why Stephen would not take any basic possessions out with him, the question that immediately springs to mind is, what exactly would be their motive for murder? It wouldn't seem to be for any gain, so had an argument gotten out of hand, Stephen had been killed accidentally, and in a panic, one or the other are subsequently covered up for their spouse. If so, then where did they dispose of his body so thoroughly that it's never been found? And why not attempt then to explain his death off as an accident? instead of constructing such a bizarre story. Although this last walk with Doris can't be confirmed, there's only her word for this, no witnesses can corroborate it, and it's been suggested by some that she simply made this up to cover a crime. Let's say that her account of events is what happened. Did someone then abduct Stephen? There's a car park only a short walk from where the toilets are, so is it possible that Stephen was offered a lift home by someone? but someone with an ulterior motive. It would have to be someone he knew and trusted if so, for the window of opportunity for a stranger to approach and abduct him would be a minutely small one. Plus a 23-year-old disabled man would be an unusual choice of victim for abduction. If so though, and it wasn't here, then was he abducted whilst walking alone along this alternate route? Again, 
this seems unlikely, the probability of such a predator being in the right place at the right time, opportunistic enough and able to abduct a 23-year-old man without any witnesses, would seem so small as to be almost disregardable. It seems to be that every way you look with this case, every possible angle seems to lead to an unlikely outcome, and it's truly an account that raises more frustrating questions than can ever provide definitive answers. So many, we could be here all day. We have an account of Stephen's final movements that can't be established by any witnesses, an alibi for his father that can't be established, a number of sightings of Stephen following his disappearance that themselves are vague and indeed can't be ascertained as genuine ones, and no clear motive for any disappearance, suicide or murder of him for that. Questions, questions, questions. Police have investigated their only suspects, the Clarks, for months in total, including searching their house and garden thoroughly, the mask and Saltburn areas in depth, and have found no trace of Stephen's remains. And although accusations still persist that he was dead at the hand of the Clarks, long before that 3pm kickoff that Monday, there is only suspicion of this. No charges have ever been brought against them. And until any evidence does come to light that makes this a possibility, it is suspicion alone, perhaps misplaced one, that must remain. Whatever your thoughts about the case, and if you have access to the ITV hub, then I do advise that you watch the documentary that I've mentioned throughout the episode. It's a thoroughly interesting account that will help you form your own opinion, I'm sure. Remember that today, there are a couple whose son has been missing for some 30 years plus now, a friend and a brother, and Stephen Clark deserves the justice of his fate being known. I sincerely hope that it one day will be. If anyone has any information regarding the whereabouts of Stephen Clark or any information relating to the case, they can contact Cleveland Police using the 101 service or Crime Stoppers anonymously if wished by calling 0800 555 111. There will also be links to online services that any information can be passed through in the episode show notes. It's a sad and puzzling story this one isn't it? Unsolved ones always are and whilst I know there's a lot to digest I'd be heartily interested as always to hear any thoughts and feedback concerning Stephen's disappearance that you folks may have. Maybe let's chuck a few ideas and theories around about the case, which you can do so in the episode thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links. As you well know by now, I'm always happy to discuss anytime, anywhere. My sincere thanks to Karen for a sterling and dedicated work in researching and writing the episode The Vanished. And the reminder goes out to anyone listening who may have a burning case that you think would be a good fit for the show. Perhaps one local to you, like Karen's just done for us. Perhaps one you may even have some sort of connection to. If you fancy researching and writing up the case for a future listener episode, and we shall likely have another a bit later this series, then you won't find me ungrateful at all and some show swag will be winging its way to you as a thank you. I'm back in the writing chair for the next time around, so I look forward to you joining me for that. Until then, my thanks once again to Karen, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, 
wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks once again for joining us, and goodbye for now.